This is Rainwater. I have a question for you. Yes. Do you think artists in particular have a problem with letting go? Very good question. Um, I really think it depends on the artist in a lot of situations. And it also depends on what it is that they're letting go of, right? Well, some specifically their art. Oh, that's a that's a timely. Because um, for me, I've had to yeah let go of quite a quite a quite a larger amount of art than I would have wanted to in the this week. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But I'll give you a more a more substantial answer to that question. Uh, yeah, you know, it is hard. And uh, to go into that further, so this week, I actually had to deal with uh, some flooding damage in the house that I've been living in. I've been living with my mom over the course of COVID, and uh, when, when did this happen? Tuesday. So Tuesday, I was recording uh, my other podcast that I do with my friend Soko, and uh, we did like, you know, we just kind of were talking a little bit after the podcast, and... During the whole time, it was raining just a torrent. Just, uh, you know, thunder and lightning, the likes of which you wouldn't really expect. But I didn't think much about it. This is kind of weather in Louisiana. It kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, meanwhile, my phone is going off of tornado warnings and all kinds of other weather alerts, like flash flood warnings and all that stuff. And I didn't really take it seriously. That kind of thing happens pretty frequently, and you get kind of numb to it over time. Sure. Well, at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to look outside just to make sure, like, it's not – nothing too bad's going on. Yeah. And so I look outside, and the backyard is just – it's it's just water. Like, it's just – there's no grass. There's just water. And uh, so I'm starting to think to myself, okay, this doesn't look good. And uh, I go check out the living room in my mom's house. And it's a pond. There's just water starting to pour in. It's like a sunken living room, too, so it's like even more Ugh. like a pond, you know? And, uh, you know, the reality of it starts to dawn on me, and I start to think to myself, okay, I need to, uh, I need to probably leave this house because I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if this is going to keep, you know, continue happening uh, so long story short, I end up, you know, uh, cause I was the only one at the house at the time. My mom was at work. My sister, uh, who has also been staying with us, uh, was at work. Um, or I should say my mom was with my grandmother at the time, but anyway, my mom was my grandmother and my sister was at work. And so I ended up bailing the house with my sister's dog, carrying her to the, carrying my sister's dog to the Jeep. I try and, you know, salvage whatever I can of like my computer, just stuff that I need. Sure. Because I know I'm not going to be in this house for a while. But a lot of the stuff I left behind at the house were, was art, um, that I've done for, you know, like, like pages and pages of comics, like at least a thousand pages. You're talking like hard copies. Yes. Like I, when I was doing, when I used to do drawing like uh, pen and ink, you know, mm -hmm. like, I would draw a page and then ink over it and then scan those pages and those would be how I'd get them, uh, you know. Up so your real life print. NFTs. Yes. Okay. 
<laughs> okay, I'm on the page my now. My real life NFTs. Tons and tons of real life NFTs left in, uh, you know, in the closet in my room. And in that kind of situation, it's just like, well, it's in God's hands now. You know, there's nothing that can be done at this point. As I was leaving the house, water is slowly starting to creep in, not just from the living room, but from like bathrooms and bedrooms. Oh my and goodness. Getting into my room. And at that point, I'm just like, yeah, it's time to bail. I got to go. I don't know what happens next. You know, the water's getting up to. Uh, you know, the higher part of my Jeep, and I'm not really sure how it's going to do in the water. Yeah. So, you know, the rain lets up. So I'm like, if there's a time to get out of the situation, now's the time. So I end up going to um, an aunt and uncle's house in Sulphur, Louisiana, which is just a little due, just a couple miles due west of Lake Charles, where I'm currently living. And so I have to, at that point, I'm just kind of like, I'm kind of just going through and letting the adrenaline sort of flush out of my system because that whole thing was like, sure. That's a, that's not something that's one of those things where you're, you're in an action movie and you don't realize you're in an action movie Yes. and you're exactly. just, it's like decision to decision to decision. And I don't want to call it a high wire walk, but it almost feels like what you would imagine a high wire walk feels like where you have to make a decision. Sometimes People are looking at you to make the decision and you don't know instinctively what is right, but you're going to take a shot and that's that's the shot you're taking. And this, in this case, it was your uh, the dog that was with you, but um, I've been in similar situations like that where I faced flooding um, and hail at the same time with my wife in the car and I have a low low rise car and that that's that's yeah, that's the adrenaline pump that you're just going. You're making you a decision. No idea what, you have no idea what happens next. You don't know if you're going to end up turning down a street where it's like, oh, that street's totally yep. flooded. I don't know which way to go. Uh, it's you know, choose your it's own a, adventure in real life. <laughs> exactly. It's those you books. Lives. Yes. Um, um, so. <laughs> so you lost all all of that art in the process. And we decided to talk about this topic for this week because incidentally – while I was piecing together our last podcast, um, I had had to back up our last episodes to a hard drive so that I could make room on my new computer. And then that hard drive stopped working, which was okay because all of our podcasts were already uploaded and this and that, and there's no real need for a backup. However, I had mistakenly copied or cut and moved source files for our video stuff to that drive as well. So I had to recreate a whole bunch of files in order to get the YouTube version up, which it went a little late last week. I apologize, but it is up now. Um, but it, it got me thinking because the rest of the stuff that was on that hard drive is also now gone. Projects from when we were in college, uh, stuff that I had shot afterwards, like there's no getting it back. And... Um, Fortunately for me, some of them, not all of them, but some of them were backed up on a second hard drive because I am anal retentive when it comes to my work. I'm not going to downplay the amount of effort, time, craftsmanship that goes into uh, comics and drawing and, and things of that nature, but filmmaking is expensive as fuck. 
Oh yeah. And then there's the added, oh, yeah. the added nightmare of scheduling where you're yeah. not paying people. So you have to work around a whole bunch of different schedules to make things work correctly. And that's aggravating beyond belief. So when I say I backed up footage, I mean, I think I have it on like three or four hard drives and one of them went down. So thankfully, um, I won't have as much loss as you did, but it did get us talking about the the thing. And this is what I was thinking about this afternoon, which is what I wanted to go into, which was I've noticed the habit with artists is we have a hard time letting go. Like even when you oh, look yeah. at like movies, there are it's called a release date. It's not called a premiere date necessarily. It's called a release date because the powers that be that whoever funding a project take it away. Like, and they, and they give it to the audience. Like it's no longer yours. And it's the dread of every single artist, the deadline. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. And I'm curious to know why we tend to feel this way. Why, why, I mean, it's almost like our art becomes a child or a best friend or something like that. Like we put so much of ourselves into it, but then we don't want to let it go. It's yeah, weird. I mean, I definitely say that I, over time, I have started to look at different projects like children. And mm. in the same respect of like, I kind of treat different projects with different degrees of like. <laughs> you have a favorite child. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> do. And it's usually the one that I'm spending the most time on at any given point. That's but, fair. you know, um, there's still like, you know, there's still projects that I've worked on for a long time that I had to let go for all sorts of different reasons. And, uh, like I've had projects that I've lost on hard drives and I, it's interesting because for me, the loss of like physical art hits deeper than the loss of stuff that's only exclusively digital. And I, and if I were, I guess the best way I would describe it as, I realized I had lost some art on like an old computer and the computer went uh, when the computer died and I, and my only backup was on a, like a, it was like a hard drive disc. So like hard drive discs wear out over time. Sure. On like SDDs that tend to last longer. So the hard drive, like the external hard drive discs went bad eventually. And so I lost like, you know, projects that went back to college projects that went back to, uh, you know, a little after college stuff that I had worked on for fun or for whatever, you know, for whatever reason. But for the way that went was, it was like, I realized it after the fact. Whereas when I was like carrying this wet, like soaked art, you know, and I could still kind of make out the drawings and stuff that hit harder. Cause it was like the tangibility of it. And it's I like watching someone die. Yeah, like I remember all the hours of myself sitting at the table working working on those pages and and all that stuff. Um, it had the physicality sort of hit deeper for me. Mm. Not that that changes anything for anybody who's like you know filling uh, filling the loss of their digital you know art. Yeah. But um, going back to your original question, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely definitely the attitude that i feel towards my art is to like my like they're my spawn you know like for some in some re in some way i'm responsible for them you know and then I'm responsible for their fate 
I think I, there, and I think it goes a step beyond that because for me, when I'm creating something, in the very back of my mind, this isn't what is always in the forefront of my mind, but it does jump there occasionally. But in the back of my mind, I'm always trying to remember, or at least I think, this art is going to outlive me. Someone like I can be dead for thirty years, and my great grandson or something like that could find a script written by me and be like, wow, like my great granddad wrote this like like that. You know what I mean? And it's almost like when you lose that, when it doesn't exist anymore, it's like, oh, that piece of me that I thought was going to live past me, far past me, died before I did. You know what I mean? Like because that's that's part of the reason why as artists we do art is we're snapping a photo or an idea and putting it into a physical state, even even considerably digital, a a another state that is not human. I guess this is the way I say, so that it can yeah. live past us. So when we watch it die, you know what I mean. And it's I think it, that's yeah. part of the reason why we we get so torn up when we have to let it go too, because it, it's just like a kid. It's like it's out of my hands now. It could die, and I can't protect it anymore. You know what I mean? Like if my oh, house burns down, knock on wood, then all three of those hard drives I was talking about are back that were backups are gone. Like that's it. It's yeah. not in a cloud drive anymore. It's too much space for that. I know that that's like, I mean, <laughs> this whole flood thing that ended up happening was something that was on, was in the back of my mind, you know, ever since I was living in my mom's house. But like, I kind of put it, put it to the side and it's like well you know it'll probably be fine and then the day comes right mm -hmm. and there's only so many things that you can do to protect the safety and security of your artwork i mean i've thought about you know one of the one of the advantages of the internet and distributing art online digitally is that you can at least in theory better in, uh, ensure the survivability of your work because it, it, it's not just like on your server but if you can get it on other people's servers yep. you know and let it multiply and spread and whatever so long as you're willing to deal with like sort of the there's a cost right it's sort yep. of there's sort of a cost it's a depreciative to value to it actually exactly yeah absolutely exactly and that's the that's the the catch-22 because you want it to mean something, you want it to be worth something, but the safer it is, the less it it's worth. I guess is the <laughs> philosophical it's... end that I'm kind of reaching at. Is that like you know what I mean? As well protected as it is, it loses its worth. I think the the worth comes from the inherent risk of, and I like that's kind of the point of the NFT, right? Is to minimize the not safety of it but the amount of it which ups its worth yes. so i don't know why i don't know why though but like i want to i i struggle with the idea it's almost like the first time you put out a new piece of art it's that fear of oh will this get lost will will no one hear this will no you know what i mean like if you yeah. put out something and no and it just goes ignored is that worse than losing it because <laughs> um, they're on the same wavelength 
that's a really good question. Uh, I guess my my first response to that, or my most initial, my most impulsive response to that, was uh, something to the effect of that's why lately I've been trying to sort of approach it more in regards to thinking about it as the process instead of the fi- the final product. Like, okay. whatever happens to it after it's produced is 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 no longer in my hands because I can't define how it's going to be received by the audience. Yep. I can't define how, uh, you know, whether I even make it to their eyes. You know what I mean? You yeah. can't, there's nothing you can do to ensure that that happens. There's plenty of, there's plenty of work that I've made that it maybe, you know, maybe five to 10 people have seen. And then either they've seen it and just kind of like went over their head or whatever, or, it just never really got in front of anybody. And that, I think that's a reality that most artists deal with at some point or another, where they, in really truly, like going into the, sort of the history of art, most, like most paintings, most art, even the most epic art, for long periods of time were only viewed by a very small group of people. I mean, even, even the, even the pyramids, you know, like even the statuary that was like that's in Giza was only seen by people who actually visited Egypt and not that many people like traveled that often. Right. You know, it was a lot time. more detrimental at that point in time. To, For the people uh, who built that stuff, like they never really got to see the fruits of their labor in the sense of, yeah. you know, having, having somebody come up to you and, be like oh i can't believe that you made this like some random stranger you know uh probably not as much anyway as today as like you know uh what's his name beeple making an nft and millions of people are you know their hearts are changed or whatever yeah um that's something that is definitely i think newer to the last hundred years of art maybe a little bit more than 100 years but i would say that 100 150 years of art that's a new Thing. Right, uh, the idea stuff is of like so much more accessible. Yes, the idea of the celebrity artist is kind of a new phenomenon, and so I've been kind of thinking about that and trying to remind myself of that when I'm with whatever I'm creating, because I want to have the perspective of, look, I mean, even if I'm not the most popular artist, I'm still more popular than Van Gogh was at his time. You know what I mean? True. Which is crazy to think about because, like, for me, like, you're so egotistical. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's like Van Gogh at his time. Like, I love Van Gogh as an artist, and he's somebody who, like, inspired me towards painting when I was a kid. And it's incredible to think that there was only a handful of people who even knew who he was during his lifetime. And then everything else. Like everything else afterward happened during or posthumously, you know, mm-hmm. and so which sucks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it yeah, really it does. does suck if you think about it, because like there are so many artists even now that are that are pumping out stuff and they won't get appreciated until someone finds it. Like I'm sure that there is probably some person out on SoundCloud or DeviantArt or something that has put out amazing stuff and just the right person with the right amount of followers on Twitter hasn't found it yet. 
and that person passed away from COVID or a heart attack or took their own life or something that, to that extent. And one, I don't want to call them gatekeepers, but one person, one distribution platform has to stumble upon them. It's like a lightning strike. And all of a sudden you're a great artist. And it's like, no, they were a great artist before that. It's just you, you, the audience are only now aware of them. And I think that's a humbling thing that artists need to start keeping in mind because I think we're all very hard on ourselves about, oh yeah, you know, like you have almost a hundred thousand followers for Trailer Park Warlock, correct? And I'm, I'm sure that even in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, if I can get to 150 by the end of next year or something like, like you know what sure. I mean? Like, there's always that next goal. Like we almost are never satisfied, and that is both an attribute and a curse at the same exact time. It's it's a double edged sword, because. You know what I mean? Like we want to keep striving further, but we also need to take that that moment to remind ourselves why we do this and that yeah. success is uh, – what's the word I'm looking for it's here? It's fleeting. It's fleeting, <laughs> but it's also um, objectionable or – uh, not How do you, when you say subjective, subjective, oh, okay. that's what I oh, mean to I say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because there are people Very who have sold so. millions of records, like gone double platinum or whatever like that. And they still are, are like, don't think that they've quote unquote made it. Like yeah. the rest of us are like, excuse me. Like <laughs> <laughs> you're on top 40 radio for two years straight. You have millions of dollars. You have made it. And it's like, no, they have their own standard about where they want to be. And they don't feel like they've obtained it yet. And then there's imposter syndrome that's a bitch that I know that we all deal with on every day. But something struck me, and it was actually something that you had told me when we were talking about in our uh, the budget versus the egg podcast about Picasso charging. Well, I think it was Picasso. You said charged like an astronomical amount for a right. napkin sketch. Yeah. And... I guess the thing that I've been trying to look at my at my stuff with now is that even when I lose something, it was part of the building blocks that are taking me where I'm going. Kind of like how Picasso was like, oh, yep. that napkin sketch is a million dollars. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, you know, you're paying for all of the art that I've done before this that's made me better to be able to do this amazing sketch of you on a napkin. So even when that stuff is lost you kind of have to write it off. You know what I mean? As it, it is, it is ultimately a cost expenditure yeah. for your later art. Right. It's right. Even, even the stuff that you produce that like even meets the goals that you want, gets the accolades or makes the money or whatever. Like that's still a stepping stone to the next thing. Yeah. And if the next thing doesn't even meet those goals, so long as you're like making art that was better than what you made, subjectively for yourself better than what you made previously to me that's what i guess that's how i try to try to look at it you know like for me like i can still look right now at trailer park warlock and go okay i can still i'm still taking all the valuable lessons that i learned with all those pages that i lost right like the pages are gone but the skill is still there the skill i've still acquired Right. right and this goes into an idea of wealth that I've been trying to focus more on, which is the idea that wealth is not so much the money that you have stored. It's the information that you've gained. It's the knowledge that you have. It's um, 
the network of friends that you have and stuff like that because all those things have exponential possibilities the more the more knowledge that you accrue the more degrees of freedom that you have there's more that you can do even when you have less because if you have the knowledge on how you can if you have the knowledge about how you can you know raise the funds to make a new project you don't have to have the initial funds previously that helps always helps right absolutely <laughs> but yeah. with the knowledge of how to do it better than you did previously you can do it faster you can do it on a tighter budget and you can do it more effectively or more proficiently and that's all stuff that it comes with time and it comes with experience and it kind of makes me think about um you know this other idea that i that i have kind of which is that sometimes i think about art as uh, I'd use this. I'd use this metaphor in talking about Twitter the other night after the podcast with uh, with you and me and, and Matt and Joe, where I was talking about uh, my issue with with social media is that you know it's a very low res way of interacting with people, right? And you're kind of just all the sentences and stuff you find are kind of just like the the excretion that people left behind, like yeah. their mind their mind crap. And um, in some ways, you know, art is kind of like that in the sense that these are the excretions of your brain that you've left along for other people to find. And for whatever reason, humans are the kind of animals where we like find the excretions of other people's brains and go, oh, that looks really cool. I think <laughs> I want to like buy that or put it up on my wall. And like, so going back to Van Gogh, like, that's exactly how I think Van Gogh sort of thought about painting was that I, I am involved with this in the act of painting. The actual painting itself is not as important to me as the, the process that I'm in, in the moment, Mm. because I'm trying to, I'm trying to show the process more than I'm trying to like make a finished final painting. And he was still concerned about that, but there's a, you're talking about There's like executing the skill. Yes, but also just like the going kind of back to, to last week's topic of that 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 play mindset, right? Like when you're doodling, when you're just or when you're just making something and you're hundred percent involved and you're not thinking about it and you're just doing it. That Intuitively. Yeah. Yes. That experience of making the piece is oftentimes or can often be the time uh, that I'm sorry, let me start over here. That experience of making the piece is oftentimes the thing that artists are reaching for. That is the what? thing of value. Not the yeah, that, not the the canvas with the oil paint on it. It is the experience of executing the techniques of transmitting a thought from your brain to your hand into the pen onto the page. Like yeah. that skill set. It's almost like I don't want to call it practice, but like, you know, a baseball, a pitcher uh, is trying to throw a curveball, a, fa- a fastball, an off-speed pitch. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they're trying to do these different things. And some once you get there, like the muscle memory of once you've – it's un- unlike unlocking a video game. That's basically what it is. You know what I mean? Because right. then you can play yeah. that level again. And that's what I was kind of thinking about too about there's another benefit to when you lose something – like like a piece or something that maybe hasn't been seen by the world is now 
you are able to cut off the fat. Like you can like you can look at a piece that you've done and be like, yeah, I did really great job on the eyebrows and the way that the brow meets with the eyes right there, but his hands look all funky. And I always hated how the hands looked on that. Now it's like, oh, now I have an opportunity to redraw that and I can make sure that I can A, still do the, the brow the way that I did it, and then I can also take another shot at those hands. And maybe that's going to work this time. And because it's, I don't want to call it fresh or new because you're redoing something that you've already done, but you have the right to reshare it. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you can go on Instagram and be like, hey, I did this a couple of years ago. It didn't get a lot of traction. I lost it in a fire. Now I gave it another shot, and this is what it looks like. And then now you've got 600 followers as opposed to the 12 you had back then, and all of a sudden, boom. There, you know what I mean? Like that was the that was the one that – quote unquote made it and another another example that comes to my mind too is I don't, we may have talked about this in the past but uh i had a computer that i worked on for a while that for whatever reason the backup battery did not work very well so it would just without warning just cut out if it was in low battery mode so i don't there's a i, I lost at least 10 or so hours of work on that oh. thing overall you know what i mean and so I got into the habit of, you know, control S like as in, you know, like it's now like just, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not even thinking about it when I'm doing it. It's yep. totally an impulsive, just like I, I it's like blinking. Every, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every 15 minutes or so. Um, but I would definitely have these moments when that would happen. I mean, the first reaction is, Oh shit. And then the second reaction is I won't be able to draw that panel again. Like I can't do it exactly how it was previously. It's totally lost to time. Yeah. It's totally just gone. And over time, what I would do is just go, okay, well, this is my opportunity to do it even better then. How did I, what did I not think about when I was originally drawing that shot? You know what I mean? And how could I do that shot better? Where could I, you know, and it it ended up actually a couple of times leading to slight alterations in the plot, like in, in good ways, you know? Sure. Um, and that, that's sort of, um, like a happy, a happy accident sort of mindset, which you really have to brute force your way into, quite frankly. It's not something that, um, it's not something that you can just like do it takes a lot of exercise to just be able to like force yourself to smile through it and be like we'll make it better you know but that's i Uh, mean in a way losing losing your art is akin to failing with it and in a way do you know what i mean like because like i'm thinking about when you're talking this i'm thinking about my first draft for haunted when i had i had a nightmare and it was me on the back of um haunted hayride and i remember someone saying to me in the dream um as the like there was a guy with a chainsaw looked like leatherface pulling somebody over the side and they're screaming for help and i was freaking out And the guy next to me on the hayride goes oh don't worry about it they use plants and then i woke up and i remember thinking myself jesus that was a brilliant idea why wouldn't a haunted halloween haunt or whatever like that put actors in the tour with you to be killed off that would make it so much more immersive Da, 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 da. watched a bunch of movies. None of them had done it yet. And I'm thinking, that's it. This is a great idea. Knocked out that first draft in like a, a night. It might've taken me a weekend to write that script. 
Sent it off to a bunch of film festivals. Nothing. Got rejected from every single one of them. Didn't place, didn't even be qualified, none of it. And I thought it was one of those moments where it was like, oh, maybe this idea wasn't that great. And I stopped and I kind of regrouped and I thought, no, that, that idea still has merit. I fucked up. Let me reread my script. And that's when I reread it and I was like, Jesus, this is shit. And that was an opportunity for me to revisit it. And I was like, I did. I, and the bright side of it was I was able to look at it. You know, that was the, the beautiful thing was I still had it in front of me. And I could say, I see where I fucked up. I can change this. I can move that there. I can do this better. I can remove this because that's not really necessary. It doesn't lead to anything. Like I could start cleaning things up. I, it was that, it's that old adage, hindsight is twenty twenty, And, you know, sometimes when you, especially when you have it still in front of you, you have that opportunity. So even when you fail, you can go back and redo it. And sometimes I guess when you lose it, it's actually a thing because you don't get distracted by trying to copy Exactly like how you said, those exact lines and everything like that. You're much more focused on the execution of, can I get this? Can I get myself to the place where I feel the same way about it that I did before or better? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, yeah. like you don't get distracted by the, the whole, can I cop? You're not Gus Van Santing psycho. You're trying to just... You're ca- trying to recapture what you had without trying to copy it, if that makes yeah. any sense. That definitely makes sense to me. And I definitely, yeah, I mean, going back to sort of physical art, uh, because there is, for me personally, there is this weird dichotomy between digital and physical art where with digital art, I don't feel as, um, I don't feel as close or as bonded to it in the same way as like if I make a watercolor painting even if it's the shittiest watercolor painting, I still feel like the certain amount of like ownership. Uh, yeah. Ownership. Uh, I feel bonded to it in this different way than I yeah. do with, with digital art. And it's a tac- It's definitely a tactile thing. Like, because using a, using like a brush, there's just like a, di- it's a different kind of connection with medium. And well, cause uh, only, it's, it's the NFT thing again. There's only one of yeah. them. There's only one yeah. hard copy. I mean, you can digitize yeah. it, like you said, but there's only that one hard copy. And even when you, when you, if you take it and Xerox it, like yeah. if you painted it, it's not going to have that texture when you run your fingers over it. It's not going to have the same thing like with Polaroids too, where it's like yeah. Polaroids. They're very. It's very hard to make. I'm, I'm sure there are ways to do it, but it's very hard to make duplicates of Polaroids because they're very much like yeah. The idea was designed to be this impromptu in the moment sort of thing. So, you know, a lot of people who had Polaroids ended up having all these all these encoded moments in time that were impossible to repeat. <laughs> Just like Yep. And and you know, going into a I guess a more a deeper philosophical level of it, there is an aspect at least from my perspective, there's an aspect of life that's very like uh, transient and that means like it pa- things pass even the most like you know like even the most uh, eventually mountains get wound, wound down by time canyons are built things change and right. with change comes loss and a lot of art I guess we can get into sort of thematics now is like a lot of art is built around dealing with that loss in some way Sometimes we try and deal with that loss by making stuff that uh, 
is very difficult to lose. Things like statues, you know, um, or bronze or sculptures or buildings. Uh, we want to make stuff that in our, in our imagination will stand the test of time, even though ultimately <laughs> the way the universe is nothing does. Right? Yeah. So something, you know, if, if the wind doesn't take care of it or if an earthquake doesn't take care of it, the, the fucking sun will take care of it eventually. Yeah. Uh, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting way in which humans attempt to achieve immortality uh, like you were kind of talking about earlier, you know, um, and it's the same way. It's 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 a similar idea that goes into you know reproduction, into having children. You want to carry on some part of you, some way, somehow. You want to carry on some part of you into time, so that you're not you're not completely lost uh, because everybody dies, right? We all. Unless physics and biology changes that in the near future, who knows? Like, maybe my brain can become an NFT and they can pass it around. On the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I should I should get off this ramble a little bit and ask you um, for yourself, like how how do you how do you view how do you view sort of that? that idea of transience in the world in regards, not even just in regards to to art, but like also sort of just the emotional deeper level of it. What do you, can you define transience for me? Yeah. Just like how things change, things pass. Um, People die, you know, like even, uh, even like star Wars, right? Like, can we even find the original (laughs) film? You know, is it gone to time? Um, that's something that I've struggled with in the past because I'm, I was not for a vast majority of my life and I'm only coming up on 35 now, but for the vast majority of my 35 years, I've been a very controlling and dare I say conservative, but not necessarily, but I don't mean necessarily in the political sense. I mean more so in just like the, I don't like things that change. Do you know what I mean? Like when when I was a teenager, I didn't like when my friends started doing this or doing that. And then I started to kind of grasp the concept that without change, life is boring. And that's 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 really what starts becoming the thing that enters my head. So when I'm working on something, if I'm working on it for too long, um, I realize not only am I boring, my audience is bored the art is probably getting boring and the original intention gets lost because the first thing that I like my, my number one intention always is to provide some level of escapism to my audience. doesn't matter what, what format I'm doing it, whether it's the script or the movie or a poster when I'm doing it, I want to take a second of your life and enrich it with something that you're not finding elsewhere. And when you become obsessive about things remaining the same, that's when life gets dull. That's the, that's the complete opposite of what I'm trying to provide. And I become my own worst enemy. So I've in recent years started really embracing the idea that things change, people change, relationships change, movies change, franchises change the whole nine yards. Like, and 
you got to be accepting with it. You don't have to love all of it. Like there's some people who out there just love every movie. And I'm just like, no, you got to have some standards. But at the same time, (laughs) I mean, you got to, you got to be able to look at things and say, like, there's tons of horror fans who are like, oh, they don't make them like they did in the eighties. And that's true. They don't, but that doesn't necessarily devalue horror movies from modern day. There are still quite a few gems that come out in modern era times that are instant classics in my mind. And then on the other part of me, I hear that and I'm like, yeah, they don't make horror movies like they do in the eighties. Fuck it. Why don't I make a horror movie like they did in the eighties? Like there's nothing restricting me. It's not like I'm saying, man, they don't make them like they did in 2070. Well, I don't have the tech and the, the kind of stuff in the future. I don't know what the fuck's coming, but I do, do know it's there's in the past. And I have an eBay account. I can get a, a film camera and some film. I can get it developed. I can make a prosthetic werewolf face. Like, it's not hard to replicate that kind of thing. So as an artist, it's like it's a, cha- it's a challenge. It's like, okay, if I want to regress, why don't I regress? Like, that's interesting. Like, that's... Do you know what I mean? Like that is still change. It's not, it's a change in a different direction, but it's still change. And that's the number one thing that I think artists need to kind of grasp is you shouldn't be looking at what everyone is doing. That's one of the reasons why I love Kanye West. He's fuck. He's a fucking space case. And I love him because (laughs) I think like a lot of times when I'm, when he's, when I see him rambling and this and that, I think a lot like how he thinks a lot of times. And I'm like, wow, like someone who's an absolute bona fide genius. Everybody thinks he's crazy, but his art speaks for itself. He is always the guy setting the trend right now. And it doesn't matter if he does a throwback to seventies soul, or if he just creates something new, like he's constantly innovating or progressing or regressing. He's never in a stagnant state. So the idea to me that, appreciate that about him but go on John but the, the, the going back to your original question the the idea of letting go and transgressing and moving and stuff like that to me is what art is all about it and a lot of people get caught up about moving forward they don't necessarily think that sometimes moving backward can be a great thing you see nowadays in film and I mean film like movies people are yeah. using film more than they have in the last 10 15 years because there was this whole big push for digital because it was cheaper but then Christopher Nolan came along. And he's like, no, I'm going to shoot on film. And, and, you know, you got a bunch of other indie directors who, yeah, maybe there is a kind of a hipster mentality towards it. But there is science, like visual science to back up the oh, yeah. film superiority over digital. It's not going to last forever. Um, but there is something tangible there that adds something different to that experience. And that variety is what sparks soul. Like, does does anybody want to watch the same movie five million times? I mean, granted, I did with Batman Begins, but every now and then I, I want to throw on something else. I want to throw on Wedding Crashers. Yeah. I want to throw on, you know, a stupid trauma film or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I can't watch the same thing all the time. I got to watch something new and different, and it's got to be – it's got to change. That's, that's the key yeah. to making – Art, and that's I think that's the and to end my rant, I think that's the big thing that artists need to understand is that if you want to stand out, you got to risk that change, and you have to lose everything you've built. I brought this up during our original podcast with uh, Joe Bevel about um, Donald Glover 
Childish Gambino. His first album was everything I wanted it to be. It was so great. It was a great hip-hop album. His second album, I had preconceived expectations about what it was going to be, but he completely changed his style. 100% not what I was expecting, and I did not vibe with it at, at the beginning. It was not what I wanted. It was not what I thought it should have been. And then I go back and I listen to the songs now, and I'm like, yeah, this is different. I'm glad he did this. I'm glad it's different. It, I'm glad he didn't repeat himself. I'm glad he cut off and lost that part of him that made that first album. And it was a completely different him that made that next thing. So it's like, if you're not cutting off, like when we do art, even you, I like, I'm sure you use the eraser tool, right? right. <laughs> I have, you know, swapped out different takes in a, a scene and this and that. It's the idea of editing. And if we as artists don't edit ourselves, then we're not growing. Yeah, that's a really I really like that analogy that you're going with because uh, that really that really brings to light a very important aspect of being an artist is and not necessarily everybody does this. It's something that I certainly I certainly aspire towards it, but like making my life a form of art as well, where I am living my life in such a way that it somebody who might look at it in the future might view it you know as a sort of experiment or a, a sort of like attempt to describe something deeper you mm. know or whatever like they get some impact from the the story of my life or the story of somebody else's <clears throat> right. the story of somebody else's life uh and that's certainly like the sense i get from you know, some of my favorite artists, like I, I feel that way about David Bowie, where it's like, there's a guy who kept changing. And I, it's interesting because I think of Kanye West as sort of our modern day David Bowie, hmm. in that he's very much, both of them are very much interested into the idea of like changing and sort of taking the zeitgeist of the moment and putting it out there from their perspective or from their filter. Yeah. And, the world is always going to change, right? And that so that can make it very easy for an artist to change. All they have to do is sort of pay attention to what's going on in the world and then, you know, lasso onto it and just go for the ride. Mm. It's a lot harder to in you know to more intentionally force yourself to change, right? And sometimes that has to happen, and then sometimes it happens without your input at all, right? Like for myself, I'm kind of going through a certain amount of life change with all this stuff with the flood right um it's certainly changed my attitudes about where i'm going to live in the future which is going to impact me in some way big or small right sure. um it's changed a lot of my thought about trying to hold on to everything because you know a lot of the stuff that was lost is stuff from my childhood like uh, a, v a VHS copy of Land Before Time that I know that I watched religiously as a child. Right. And I never watched it at all after probably the age of seven or eight, but having it there for so long was like this thing that in my mind, it needed to be there. Well, now it's not there anymore. Now it's gone. And that's something that as I get used to, I start thinking about, okay, well, so what can I do now, right? What can I 
where do I go to now? Where do I pivot? Sort of going in, in going in the direction of what you were talking about. Of, and I think this is why most artists really struggle with letting go of stuff is because it's the fear of where do I go next? If I don't have this stable place yeah. that I've been hanging out in, where I know that it'll 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 hit the right notes for me, or I'll feel happy, or make other people happy doing this, like. Why would I leave here if this is if this is doing everything that I need? Why would I take the chance of going somewhere else where like I don't know what the fuck's gonna happen? Right. <laughs> like after Trailer Park Warlock, if I'm just like fuck it, I'm a I'm completely an NFT artist. I'm never making comics again. I'm just making 3D sculptures of people's buttholes. Like that's <laughs> you know. But like you're absolutely I, right though. Like that, and I think that's. That's the thing. A lot of artists don't. We crave moving forward, but we fear it. It's that. It's that. Again, a double-edged sword where we want to change, but we're afraid to change. And it's not something I think a lot of normal people go through. They have the stepping stones that they, you know, are laid out for them. It's like, oh, go to school, get a good job, get married, have a kid, have grandkids, die. And like, as long as they're hitting those beats and their story structure, they they yeah. feel comfortable. Whereas an artist could feel, eh, I don't know if I'm going to get married. I don't know if I'm going to have kids. I don't know if yeah. I want to, you know, do this or do that or whatever. And then they could also be like me where it's like, okay, I got married. I had a kid and part of me still wants to do crazy stuff. I want to jump out of a plane. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's like, I have to figure out to self edit and figure out what's going to best inform me as, as the art, like how you were talking about making yourself a piece of art. And that's the real thing that, that a lot of artists are afraid to do. And I think they're robbing themselves because what is art, if not the reinterpretation of real world experiences through another medium? Everything that a lot of us are, we talked about this last week with the instinct thing, we are built up of our experiences, right? And that's what the instinct really informs. And so if you're not really living your life, you're not really putting yourself in the best position to create new art. That's kind of how I've been approaching life these days. It's like if I'm scared out of my mind with something, I'm in the right place. I like at, there was one point when, you know, there's a pizza place that, you know, I ate from my entire childhood because my parents always ordered from there and they drove and paid and picked up for it. And I had to start going there once I started living on my own. And I realized I didn't know the streets around there and I didn't know how to get home from there. And like going to pick up a pizza, I don't want to call it traumatizing, but it was a nerve wracking experience because I was like, is this a one way street? Is this going to take me here? Is this going to take me to a bad part of town? And it was one of those things that you just had to do. So now I'm at the point where I am dying. I'm dying to get into the point of pre-production where I can make a cold call. That was one of the things that I like absolutely dreaded for my entire life. And right now I'm kind of thirsting for the idea of making a cold call <laughs> to some random, like a horse and carriage place to say, hey, I'm shooting a movie and I need a horse and carriage, but I also need it to be a hearse. And do you have black horses? How much would that cost? Do you have availability? Could we do all night? Like that kind of stuff? I'm like thirsting for it right now because 
that's a new experience to me. And if I stop doing that stuff, I'm going to get bored and I'm going to get depressed. That's, that's the long of the, tr- the, the hard, heavy truth that I realized when I came out of my depression was if it, being safe is the worst way to live. It really is, especially for an artist. If you feel yeah. comfortable, take it in for a breath, maybe two, because you know something you should relax and celebrate and take a minute to just kind of, you know, let your body catch up to where your mind has been. But when you get back to it, man, you got to go skydiving. You got to let the snake, you know, hold a snake in your hand. You got to do all that kind of crazy stuff to yeah. feel alive. Because then you're going to be thinking about that one day when you're writing a story. You're like, I remember that day that I held a snake in my hand. And now I'm writing a scene where a guy is surrounded by snakes. And I remember I had this thought. It's a thought that you'd only have if you were really surrounded by snakes. And that's going to be a... Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be a random thought that some screenwriter who wrote an Indiana Jones movie that they never been around a snake... You know, they're just going to go, oh, snakes, okay. It's like a guy throws a stick at them and that's it. <laughs> but a guy who's actually been near a snake, a, a snake is just going to be like, you know, some other avenue that's going to be make an audience go, wow, that's really great. And that's what's drawing people into your story or your art is that you are, you are an observer with the opportunity to communicate feelings, emotions, experiences, whatever it may be, that the normal people that play it by the beats, paint by numbers, don't. And that's yeah. when you find value as an artist. Like yeah, you are living the life that everyone else wishes they could. It definitely goes into something that we've talked about on several podcasts and something I always like to bring up, which is that for artists, lived experience is like one of the most fertile places to pull from for like for making your work, like making your art. Uh, I know that like the experience that I went through this week and even going through right now is going to filter into, yeah, is probably going to filter into trailer park warlock in some way. There's like going to be a, there's going to be an empire strikes back kind of downbeat ending to the next season or something <laughs> like that. But that's, what's great. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Cause when you have, you, when the feeling is no longer abstract, it's like a memory. It's a fun, it's a, even better. It's a traumatic memory, right? So right. you can like, <laughs> you, you have something very solid that you can put to paper. Hmm. That isn't just like, you know, it isn't just your imagination and not, to right. Like, you know, not to poo poo the imagination or whatever. I love the imagination, but, um, you know, uh, since we're all working on our shit, you know, sometimes you accrue shit that happens that you need to work out. And sometimes you, you just have to kind of like have the mindset of making the most of it. Right. Absolutely. Because otherwise, otherwise, like what can, what, what, what can you do? Like, I don't want to just hang on to this, you know, terrifying experience and then have it just there and never like make, make more of it, you know, make something out of it in my life where it's like, yeah, you know, I had this bad experience, but then I used it in a story and it actually like was pretty impactful for me overall. You know what I mean? Um, so would you, would you Jow, have, um, 
Would you have any other advice to writers or artists in regards to how to use like lived experience in a story? Like maybe we can go a little more direct into that because right now we're sort of on the abstract. We're yeah. skirting around the topic, <clears throat> but I was thinking like maybe we could spend this moment to sort of talk about how to, how to notate, I guess, our lives in, well, a, in a way in art. To be brutally honest, what you need to do is understand why you're not going to be the only person who's gone through a lived experience. Like, throughout humanity, these things echo. You know what I mean? They rhyme. They they come in and out of everybody's life. It's a universal thing. Um, But you have the opportunity as a storyteller to fill it with meaning. Like most people complain that their lives don't really have that much meaning and that movies and, you know, fiction are bullshit because they always find some kind of silver lining or whatever. But that is why the audience is coming to you. We are the shamans. We are the wise men of lived experiences. That's the kind of thing. And it's our job to not so much look on the bright side. It's not always about finding the good. It's about finding the meaning. Um, the meaning can be inter- sure. can be interpreted as good, um, yeah. or it can be a warning signal. You know what I mean? Like it can be like yep. the the point is you are providing that experience. It's this is one of the reasons why I love horror movies is because you go through a traumatic experience of death and loss and all like the crazy adrenaline filled scenarios from the safety of your couch. And at the end of it, you feel a little bit braver than when you went in. And I, you know what I mean? Like when I got depressed, when I say got, I mean, I, when I get depressed, I put on Shawshank Redemption and that movie works me through my shit. I have never been to prison. I have never been, you know, accused of murdering my wife, knock on wood, (laughs) I, I don't live in the 1940s. Like, it, and none of those things yeah. are part of my life experience, but I've had that feeling of despair. And somehow Frank Darabont and Stephen King were able to mesh into one story that interprets despair into the yeah. opera, into a, a, a question. It, it's a proposal. And they say it in the movie get busy living or get busy dying, which is, okay, you're in this state of despair. What are you going to do with it? And that's the question proposed to the audience. They don't say that despair is good. They don't say that it's bad. They don't say anything. All they say is, what are you going to do with it? They ask a question. That is what the artist does. They ask a simple question to the audience. And when I watch that movie, I see a character make a decision says, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be trapped here. I'm going to free myself from despair, which is, in the figuratively sense or, or the the physical representation of that is the prison. And he frees himself. He goes through literally a three football field length tunnel of shit to get yeah. there. And it's all a beautiful analogy. It's symbolism of the things you have to do to get where you want to be. But it, all it starts with is a simple question. What are you going to do? And I ask myself that when the movie is over. It's like, okay, uh, life sucks right now. So what can I do about it? And that's all it needs to do. It doesn't need to tell me, you can do it. Go, Andrew, get up. You can do-. No. 
All it has to do is ask me the simple question. What are you going to do? Because it's up to me. So as an yeah. artist, when you go through those experiences, yes, you are allowed to be human. You are allowed to grieve, to mourn, to feel loss, to have self-pity and sympathy for you know your situation and everything like that. But at some point, you need to step back and you need to evaluate it objectively and just be like, how can I use this? Because I'm not the only person that's going to go through this or has gone through this or whatever. Yeah. So like when I look at things yeah. now, when I'm writing a story, I like to look at it as maybe I get hit by a Mack truck tomorrow, but they make Indom and then one day my son got depressed and he watches Indom and it's me talking to my son through that script, through that story, and he gets something from that that gets him out of that depression. And that's how I have to look at it. So it's not so much about being preachy. It's about it's about understanding why your audience comes to your art. They escape, but they're also looking for something. Everybody is. When, when you go to a, a, any kind of medium, when you go look at a painting, what, why do people look at paintings? Why? Because we want to we want to see a window into yeah. something that we haven't seen. So like that's why a lot of people get bored when they look at art history stuff because it's like oh, it all looks the same. But then you look at Dante's Inferno and you're like, holy shit, like what the <laughs> fuck's going on here? And then like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like right. you're, you're, you're looking at all the detail and everything and you're just like, wow, that's something. And that's the one that stands out. That's the one that speaks to you. And I think as an artist, you just have to understand why the audience comes to you again, why they come to you and what your role is as the artist, the artist and Absolutely. the audience have a relationship. So if you understand what your role is, you need to figure out how you're going to play it. And that's, that's how I would say, what would you say that uh, an artist should do in terms of actionable stuff with their life experiences? Because yeah, I've rambled, I mean, rambled I, for about 10 minutes now. So it's your turn. No, I mean, <laughs> I would, uh, I would relate to it pretty similar to what you're saying. Um, although I will, I'll use the story. Uh, I've talked about this story on the podcast before, but the book Jerusalem has had a pretty, pretty considerable impact on me in the sense of thinking about and thinking about life as a historical process and thinking about the overall history of the earth of humanity. And um, so it, it, being, it gives me perspective to think of myself as, as this, as this small, um, player and a much larger act right because mm -hmm. the story so the story of jerusalem uh to go into that actual topic is is about a town it's about a town called northampton it's in uh, the united kingdom and it's more about the town than it is about the people but each chapter is the from the perspective of a different person who lived in northampton at different periods of time so you can go the story goes as far back as uh, during times of Roman occupation, you know, which was like, I, I can't even give you a proper year date, but maybe like 300 AD or before then, to all the way to, you know, 2000 and, uh, 2016. And so when you get to see people's lives spread out in this one area, right, over the course of time, you get to see just how much things change, just how how much stays the same too in terms of human psychology. Yeah. And so you kind of get it 
the the feeling that I always got from reading that book was this feeling of, you know, even when I don't feel like my life matters, it does matter because it leads up to somebody else's life. It le- and it impacts the people around me. It impacts the environment that I live in, no matter how big or how small. And for myself, like, what I'm saying, I feel like is just a modification, really, of your statement, which was that um, I think of the artist as somebody who offers a, a set of binoculars to somebody or a microscope or some tool to say, hey, you may have been looking at life this way for this long, but have you tried looking at it this way? See, you know, have you tried looking at the world from a perspective of like into the future, into the past? Or what if you were just removed from uh, like the third dimension entirely, which is something that happens in Jerusalem. And it's, I will say like, just from a, just to kind of digress a little bit, uh, it's one of the few books I've read that's like actually tried to describe what it would be like to look at time from a, from like a four dimensional perspective. Wow. Like much better than interstellar tries to do it. But like, uh, <laughs> it describes looking at time in a way that I've never thought of before, where it almost feels like mathematical, like, Oh, this actually really makes sense. And it ends up turning into like this very, um, matter of factual way of describing what it would be like to be a ghost, which is wow. one of the weirdest. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever read in a story. And um, in any way, that shift in perspective allows me to sort of think in regards to my own lived experience. And it allows me to it allows me to not be too like con like too concrete in my day to day experience. I was gonna it say, gives me a, it sounds like you're trying to say like you can detach yourself from your, your yeah, own like, experience. Yeah, it gives me a second to like shift. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. To say like, you know, yes, this is my life right now, but like, what was this? What was this house like 60 years ago? Or like, what was this land like 100 years ago? Mm. This house wasn't here that, you know, 100 years ago. This was something else. This was a forest. This was whatever, you know, yeah. go back a million years ago. Who knows what the hell it was? It's and... crazy to think like, I do think like that occasionally. Sometimes I'll be sitting somewhere and I'll be like, there's a chance a T-Rex walked right where I was standing. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, that kind of crazy thought enters my mind. Or sometimes I'll be like, there could be a ghost that, you know, died here six months ago and I would never even know it or the aliens walked here or you know what I mean? Like somebody got abducted here. Like I, I absolutely can look at it that way. That's where the imagination comes back into play. But (laughs) yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but see, that's the important thing is that you are saying it through that different lenses because that's how two artists interpret things differently. And that's why I don't want to say some artists excel, but more people can identify with one particular artist and some people will identify with another artist. And sometimes we measure things incorrectly. We say, oh, you know, somebody went and saw this artist movie and there's a hundred million people that went and saw that movie and 12 people went and saw that movie. I don't think that negates the, the 12 person movie. I think that it just means that those 12 people feel drawn to that particular artist and that's, 
their community. That's their click that like people see things differently. And those 12 people see it the way that one artist saw it and the other millions. Now, from a business standpoint, of course, they're going to shift towards the person who had a million eyeballs on their thing. But that that to me is is as we're learning with the crypto market right now, money is bullshit. Like yeah. <laughs> that's just it the... is very value is very transient, right? Right. Uh, it'll it shifts from hand to hand, and you you can't quite ever predict like how it's going to shift. And I wanted to just tie in because I digressed a little bit when I was talking about Jerusalem. I wanted to tie in to the original thing, the original statement about, or the original question about, you know in regards to direct experience. So ultimately the book of Jer- the book Jerusalem the direct experience that goes into it is Alan Moore has lived he's the writer of the book Alan Moore has lived in Northampton basically all of his life which is why he chose that as the subject for the book. And as I read the book it became apparent to me that this book was him learning about the history of this town that he lived in. And making a semi semi autobiographical story out of it because it involves a character who's very much a stand-in for him, and involves characters who are stand-ins for his family, and so he's basically like making he basically ends up making this really like ambitious sort of family history to a certain extent, and that had a lot of like. That, that meta level of it had a lot of impact on me in regards to thinking about stories because it's one of the most personal stories I've ever read. You know, like it, it's a, because it involves, it involves this, this incredible intimate detail, not only about a person's life, but their genealogy. And uh, that just seems like such an interesting way to in, for an artist to involve themselves in their work. Like, yeah, it could be egotistical, but he manages to do it in a way that it isn't egotistical at all. It's like he's really thinking hard about this one specific spot in the United Kingdom because it's where, you know, it's where his heart is, basically. And it comes through in the story. And uh, and, and it's also, I mean, that is part of the reason why I keep har- harping on this idea of, like, direct experience because... I want to see other people's interpretation of that idea. Like I'd love to see other people make work that is like myself included exclusively based in the space where they are living in that moment. You well, know, it, it like, is, it is that mantra, right? What you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was a cool, that was a cool thing about digits was like, I kind of got to see a bit of like your hometown Right. Even yeah. though I don't remember in the story if it was supposed to be explicitly in in Connecticut. It was kind of wherever yeah. the United States, right? It was kind of ambiguous, but, yeah. But knowing that it was shot there and knowing that it was like your friends and, and people that you know and cast that was from that area, it was like I got to see a part of that that area of the United States that I wouldn't see any other time and it's a really interesting fact or an interesting aspect of a lot of films is that a lot of films kind of take place in ambiguous like locales that are usually just some some random place in los angeles or new york you know yeah and our our you know stories are an opportunity to talk about a locale you know and 
Doesn't or to create or to create one. Some yeah. some people, some storytellers and artists, they take the opportunity to make the setting a character, and yeah. those are the ones. Like again, I'm going to keep going on horror here, but when you when I say the words Camp Crystal Lake, everybody knows Jason Voorhees. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I talk about Haddonfield, people talk about Michael Myers. I talk about um, Springwood, Freddy Krueger, like. They they take yeah. the opportunity to create those personalities of uh, our characters of a setting, and most of them are actually places. And it's like, okay, I've read the IMDb trivia. I know it was shot in Illinois. I know it was shot in New Jersey, etc. Like I am getting a taste of those things, regardless. But it's also it's that fusion of lived in experiences and imagination, and that's. Yeah. You know, that's our kind of our job, and I don't think anyone should ever fault an artist for being um, exuberant or bombastic with their tales, telling them a little taller than the rest of us, yeah. uh, just because that's kind of our thing. Uh, you know what I mean? We yeah. like to embellish into kind of character caricature things just because it's a stylistic choice. It makes it more interesting. It's important. It's it's what separates the life or, or art from the mundane. Sometimes yeah. movies will be like, "Oh no, this is just like real life," and I go back to that fucking amateur filmmaking one hundred and one thing where every story starts with somebody waking up and hating their dead end job in the office. That bullshit. Like that's yeah. boring. I don't want to go to the movies to see that. I don't want to watch that. I want to read that. Give me something more. Give me something a little bit more. Give me a little bit of fun, livelihood um, to that, some kind of meeting. And yeah. that's where it comes down to. So I think uh, we've passed our one-hour mark, but I wanted to end with one more thing because we're talking about the art of loss. And do you think it's important? This is our last topic. But do you think it's important for artists not to only – find meaning or you know insert some kind of theme or even ask a question as i pointed out before about loss but to also showcase it because i've had a couple of times when i've had stories um that i've written and people were like yeah i don't know if i want to go watch this where the dog dies and do you know what i mean like they like people uh, artists will shy away from doing things like that because they know an audience doesn't necessarily want that. But at the same time, as an artist myself, again, I feel like you're not living that full life unless you've yeah. gone through a, a gauntlet of emotions every month. Like you need to have, and I say this as a dude, that I can't tell you the last time I cried. I think the last time I cried was when I first held my son back in December. But since then, I, it's been four or five months now and I haven't cried. And it's like there's a part, there's a human part deep down inside me that wants to engage, wants to shift into that gear. Yeah. And I feel like it's important to showcase those moments in art, that the art like loss and grief yeah. and all that kind of thing. But a lot of artists shy away for it, from it because they know an audience doesn't go to a story – for that yeah, so what's your two cents on say, that i was gonna say that that's I, I imagine that that's often the reason why artists shy away from it is explicitly because not how not because they don't want to do it because they're worried that somebody might not enjoy it 
because there is often a bias against downbeat. You know, there's, but I mean, like, there's a bias against any kind of beat. If you think about it, if you have a character that's jumping out of a plane, right? Mm-hmm. The character, the people in the audience, a good majority of them are not going to go skydiving, but they do yeah. enjoy that vicarious feeling of that you know the the shots and the panoramic views and all this kind of stuff of falling and the wind blowing and the screaming and all that kind of excitement that goes with it right that's not a downbeat that's an upbeat that's that thrill of adrenaline and we talked about they don't want to you know people can hit those beats of life and not feel any change and they feel okay but i think deep down they're craving it and i, I i'm curious to know why you think people shy away from any of those beats you know what i mean like the downbeats in particular yes but like the 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 thing stays the same is that the audience craves all of the beats but for some reason downbeats get the shaft it's shying away from having the feeling i I mean i definitely say having been in you know uh having been through some pretty difficult parts in my life there have been times where i'm like i i can't watch that movie you don't want to relive it. I can't watch it. that movie tonight. I don't want to feel that way. Like, yeah, you know, like I have to be in the emotional state to deal with it. Where it, it, in the same way of like, you know, music, where it's like sometimes I want to listen to like sad and sad and intensely emotional music. Yeah, especially when I'm creating. But it really depends on where I am in the day, and it doesn't entirely. It's not like something I can rationally explain you know like it's just like sometimes i'm like oh i feel like i want to listen to some yeah fucking moody classical music from the romantic period or like the radiohead uh, cover of uh yeah exactly yeah. there are times <laughs> there are times when radiohead is necessary uh and then there are times where it's like i need daft punk today i need something upbeat yeah and uh, it's, it's interesting. Cause I do think it's, I, I think it's a case to case basis. Some people respond really differently to an emotional state depending on where they are at in the day. And also I would, I would wonder, I don't know, but I would wonder if it has to do with a given time period as well. Like I'm sure there, I, I don't know this for certain, but I'm sure somebody did like a study, a um, looked into the history of it there might be years or periods of time where movies that are more realistic and more emotionally intense did better than lighter movies like the 70s were a period of time that had a lot of emotionally intense like heart like harder in terms of yeah yeah in terms like you know reality or whatever um where the comedy wasn't as good or it was like sillier and it didn't, it didn't, it didn't take off as much as like the grittier type movies. Um, and the, the exact opposite, you go to like the late eighties and nineties, like stupid comedy movies really flowered during that time. And they're sure. great, you know, but that was the time for them. And I don't entirely, I'm not enough of a historian to know why that was when it, when it was, but I think, and I suspect that when people, um, when people are going through harder times, they, they want two different flavors. They want, I want something that reflects this exactly. And I want something that's the exact opposite. Mm. 
I don't want I don't want to think about it right now. Yeah, I don't want a like, different I don't want a different problem to think about. I want to see I want to reflect in my own kind of yes. thing. I get I'm that. Reflect on my own. I want something that's so alien from it that I can just not think about it at all. Right, that escapism that we were talking about yeah. before. Absolutely. Um so oddly enough we've gone for an hour 20 and I uh, I was sitting here we, before we started recording thinking, "Yeah, we'll get 45 minutes out of this topic." Uh <laughs> So we'll wrap up here. Um but I definitely think loss is something that an artist should not be so easy to shy away from. Um, I think you might need to to spring it on your audience. I think that's the actionable kind of thing that I will end with my recommendation with is that I think you can't it, it can't be in the previews of the coming attractions and this and that uh, that the dog is gonna die. Um, I think it's one of those things because a lot of times loss, as Mr. Rainwater will attest, will kind of drip in on you unexpectedly. Um, and not to not to, to rub that in too hard, but <laughs> with the word drip. Um, Pun intended or not? I'm I, not sure. <laughs> halfway, you know, halfway into saying the word drip, I realized what I was doing. So it might have been, might not. I don't know. Um, but the point is, as I think... I think loss is important and I think those feelings of loss and grief and mourning and all that kind of stuff, those are necessary. I think that's something that people should include in their art, whether it's music or comics or movies or books or whatever. Maybe it doesn't always have to be there, but it that you can use it. It's another tool in the toolbox and I think it's one of the most universal, primal feelings that everybody goes through and I almost feel like it's a responsibility of an artist to try to lend a helping hand to others who you know what I mean maybe like right now if you like if if someone in your life just you know took their own life it's not the right time for you to sit down and start writing a screenplay about depression it's not um but when you've worked through it and you've found your truth in how to deal with it then you do kind of have a responsibility when you can reflect back like Rainwater was talking about standing outside of yourself and outside of time and viewing it from an objective point of view. I think you have a responsibility to put it into your art. Um, It needs to be, (laughs) I can't, (laughs) I cannot stress this point enough. It needs to be relevant to what you're doing. Uh, Because if you're hired to design a Campbell soup label, do not start putting in, symbolism for your grandparents passing away or something like that. Like that's not the, that's not what I'm saying here, but like for personal works or maybe it is maybe, maybe you're an advertising director shooting a commercial and you want to, you know, pay homage to your grandpa who always made you chicken noodle soup or something like that. Maybe that's the comfort that somebody is seeking or or will resonate with someone who knows. But I guess the point is, um, Loss is something to value. Yes. Maybe uh, not I, maybe not chase after, <laughs> but yeah. to value. No, I, I would say um it's some loss is something to value and I the other thing that I was going to say is I think an artist has a responsibility to themselves to to convert the loss in their life into uh, into 
art that that goes beyond it, I guess, that uh, transforms it or sublimates it. Uh, I guess that's the word that I'm looking for. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that's all that I have to say on in regards to that. I think we've nailed it. And that's the end of our show, folks. We'll see you next week.